Recording in progress. I was about to say this is uh, the southernmost interview I've done, but I guess that's not true because I had an interview with uh, from uh, Brazil. Southernmost <laughs> in the state, anyways. Uh, right, worship brother Rit Moore, Grand Orator for the Grand Lodge of Texas. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So um, this is uh, an interview I've been excited about doing. It had been my intention, and I believe I got in touch with you, to travel to Texas uh, a couple months ago now, or last month, I guess, for the Grandmaster's homecoming, but they locked us all down here in Ontario, so uh, I decided to put that trip on hold. Um, but still, uh, you know, Freemasonry in Texas, I understand you guys have got some amazing buildings, some, some amazing historical connections between Texas and Freemasonry. And so it is on my list to visit for sure. But since we can't do it in person, we're doing it over uh, the internet. So thank you so much again. Oh, glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, Texas does have some unique architecture, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's, that's worth the trip at least. So let's start though with your position, uh, Grand mm -hmm. Order, which not every jurisdiction uh, has to my knowledge. Um, yeah, I haven't looked into that. I'm not sure either. I don't believe, and if I'm mistaken, I'm sure some Mason will throw it in the comments. I don't believe we have one in Ontario. Uh, so anyways, tell me, what is a, a your role as the Grand Order for the Grand Lodge of Texas? Uh, it's when everybody takes a nap at Grand Lodge. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, it, it, it Originally, because it was like... Or, it dates way back in our, our jurisdiction. Uh, so originally it was put in for the entertainment and education of the brothers. And that's pretty much sums up my role. Uh, it, it kind of evolved from just speaking at Grand Lodge to, you know, historical events and, you know, wh wherever you're called upon. It used to be a more popular role to, you know, speak at lodges and things like that. But that's kind of it, it, it's gotten a little more ceremonial. Uh, than in years past, but, you know, speeches used to be 30, 40 minutes long. Now, if they're over 15, you've lost them. So it's a different time. The, 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 it is a different time, but do you think that, um, uh, you know, should we, uh, whether you have a grand order or not, do you think Masonic jurisdictions should perhaps be looking at, at, involving more educational uh, presentations in the lodges or just having more time designated to um, lectures and historical presentations and, and speeches on the craft. Because uh, yeah, it, we do live in a society of very short attention spans, it can seem like. Um, but maybe, you know, Freemasonry is one of those places where perhaps we can start to increase our uh, our use of, of time and, you know, spend a little bit more time talking about history and education in the craft. No, absolutely. Because, uh, you know, my job is grand order. 90% of the time I'm speaking to the public, uh, more, more non-Masons than Masons, you know, Masons and their family, like at the Masonic picnic. So it's different there. You know, that's where it's got to be short and sweet. In, in Masonry, if it's a good topic and well-researched and well-put-together, 
I, I mean, you can hold attention for a lot longer than 15 minutes in a Masonic Lodge with the Brethren if the uh, education's quality. I think we kind of got uh, too much into uh, here, let's read the short talk bulletin or something that are great, uh, but I don't think they were meant for educational presentations that kind of captivate the, like what we need in our Masonic Lodges now. Uh, and luckily, that's not really my forte you know, as grand orator. While I do bring some educational stuff, you know, it, it's kind of more of a motivational entertain, at least the way I take it, you know. Uh, so while I've got to be historically accurate as well, uh, as well you know, he's got to kind of tie together and be entertaining because uh, it's for the more for the public than for the Mason. So not to put you on the spot, because this is one of those very broad topics, I, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who has never had the chance to to visit Texas, either for masonry or, or any other reason, um, tell me a bit about, you know, Freemasonry uh, in Texas. Uh, I know, you know, for example, you guys have connections to the Alamo, which I thought was really cool, or oh Freemason connections to the Alamo. But just mm -hmm. in general, I know there's just, I, I've heard of some amazing Masonic architecture, some amazing Masonic lodges. So just the connections between Freemasonry and Texas and also kind of the state of Freemasonry in Texas as of 2021. Now you said Alamo, so I got to grab my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, we're very, very lucky here in Texas because masonry is very intertwined with the history and the formation of Texas. Uh, so like every year at the Alamo, we get a spot to do a little celebration for those brothers that were a part of it. You know, right there at the Alamo used to open up lodge in the inside the Alamo and the state's very embracing, embracing of that. Uh, we do. Um, uh, tributes at the San Jacinto battle where Texas won her independence. Uh, we're very, very lucky to be uh, in a state that has a rich history that Freemasonry is so intertwined with, and that's still alive and well today. So that, that's a real treat for sure on that part of it, because, uh, yeah, the Alamo is a very big part of our culture as Masons uh, here in Texas, for sure. Um, and the architecture uh, from you know, some of the smaller buildings that guys have really uh, taken good care of to the bigger ones like our Grand Lodge. I mean, if you come uh, to Texas to look at Masonic architecture, that's stop one for sure. Uh, it, I mean, it's just absolutely gorgeous. The outside has the pillars that are modeled after uh, King Solomon's pillars. Uh, and one of our past Grand Masters uh, apparently figured out the size of a cubit. So they're supposed to be exact replicas as height and width and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's, it's really breathtaking, even if it wasn't. Um, but there's, you know, the Scottish Rite um, Cathedral there in San Antonio that is breathtaking as well. That's probably stopped too. There's a great one in Fort Worth. There's a great one in Dallas. I mean, really and truly any major city, you're going to get lucky and see something awesome. Because, uh, and, and, typically pretty old as well because uh, there's some old Masonic lodges still in use. You know, one thing um, that you might not uh, be beyond the, the idea of Masonry itself. Uh, one thing that um, perhaps Texas Freemasons and Ontario Freemasons can commiserate on that other jurisdictions uh, not so much is 
you know, just the, especially in Ontario and I understand Texas, the, the size of our jurisdictions and <laughs> the, the, just the logistics of the, the travel, you know, I'm thinking here in Ontario, especially some of your Northern jurisdictions, um, you know, to get from one lodge to the next, it's uh, a two, three hour drive in some cases. Mm-hmm. And then to get to, you know, Grand Lodge, Toronto from say Kenora, you're looking at, at eight, nine hours driving. Um, yeah. But I know that, you know, Texas is also a, a you're, you're the biggest state in the continental U.S., right? Not counting Alaska? Or does yes, it just no, no, no. We're smidge bigger than California. So just add, and as somebody who is part of the, the Grand Lodge, part of whose job is to, you know, present on Freemasonry in the state, just mm-hmm. um, talk about, about the, the travel that a Grand Master has to go through at Grand Lodge offices, just getting to all these different Masonic events, you know, throughout the, the very big and expansive state of Texas. Uh, that's while it may, it is a big sacrifice because there's a lot of time and a lot of tires that you uh, go through. Uh, man, that's the that's the beauty of being a Grand Lodge officer uh, and having that pull to travel. Uh, because you know, of course, work and family comes first, but uh, you you seem to find a way to make it happen. And uh, you know, I'm I've traveled all over the state this year as Grand Order, just having a blast and going through the back roads, seeing sites, because from one end of Texas to the other is completely different. West Texas and East Texas are like two different, uh, you know, completely two different states. Same thing north and south. So it's just a blast. You might be eating on the coast at one point, uh, visiting the guys down in the Galveston and Corpus area, or you might be in the desert, you know, out there in West Texas. You, you never know. And the cool thing about that is, too, uh, everybody kind of has their culture. Uh, while we're all Texans, there is a difference between an East Texas boy and a, a North Texas boy. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to fellowship with all those different cultures of Texas. Anything um, in the last, uh, in your time as Grand Order, in the last little while that, that stands out, any trips that, um, you know, stand out in your mind for, for something special, whether it be, it could be, you know, uh, oh specifically Masonic or even just, you know, a place that you visited that you never visited before. So, I mean, right off the top of the list, I got to speak on the grounds of the Alamo. I got to speak uh, at the uh, grave of the massacre of Goliad and uh, on, on the monument of San Jacinto on the steps of that, which is sacred ground for all Texans. Uh, That was, I'm getting a little bit of goosebumps thinking about it because it was a tremendous honor. Um, but the one at the top of the list so far, uh, I came in uh, to contact with a letter that a brother wrote in World War I uh, about a battle that they were fighting over there in France. And it was a particularly bad battle on Mount Blanc. And uh, a lot of men were killed. A lot of Texas Masons were killed. Well, he performed Masonic rites right there on the battlefield. And he wrote a letter back to his lodge about doing this uh and he couldn't name any names of who they were doing it for and all this kind of stuff well <clears throat> pardon me we've researched that letter and found out who the guy was they were performing masonic rites on and it was from a lodge in san antonio that happens to still be in uh 
in at work. Uh, so we took that letter back because it is one of the best testimonies of Freemasonry, uh, hands down. We took that letter back, read it to the brothers at that lodge, uh, and had a great time of bringing that letter home to that brother's home lodge that received Masonic rites in World War I. I mean, it's over 100 years old, and it will send shivers down your spine. It's beautiful. But that's at the top of the list. Is that letter still floating around? Like, did it get scanned or put up on online it, anywhere? Yeah, so uh, it's out of, uh, it's from the brothers at Hillsboro 196. Uh, and they had it in their records for a long time and rediscovered it, uh, you know, going through their records. And uh, they're proud of it and they've shared it quite a bit. And uh, they gave it to a brother as a gift for him visiting. And he gave a bunch of his coins to them. So they didn't have anything to give back to him, but he gave out like 30 Masonic coins. So they gave him a copy of this letter. And that then five years passed. And that's when he showed it to me. And I was like, well, guess what? I'm taking that around the state. So the end result will be that it will probably be published in our magazine, Texas Mesa's magazine, uh, if it doesn't end up being as a research paper for me or somebody, because uh, it's such a beautiful story. But yes, it will be. Right now, I've, I'm taking it on tour, if you will. Uh, I've gone to Houston twice and done it. I've, I've done it a total of 14 times where I read it in Lodge to the brothers. Uh, you know, and it's, it's very moving. I haven't left a lodge that uh, didn't say it was one of the best testimonies. You know, so you know, that's, that's an interesting topic you bring up um, or uh, the, and I don't know if based on your, your research and the history of, of Freemasonry in Texas, you know, the, the biggest kind of boom periods for Freemasonry in Ontario and in Canada uh, you know, it was after World War World War One and after World War Two, nineteen twenties and nineteen fifties, and a, a large percentage of that growth came from returning veterans. It's actually mm -hmm. a, I always bring up the story. Um, I'm missing my legs. I use a wheelchair. Uh, you know, the reason I'm able to be a Mason in Ontario is because originally. Uh, you, you weren't, you, to be a Mason, you had to be a quote unquote full man is how they described it. You had to have yeah. all your limbs. Yeah. And then due to the number of veterans who were applying to join the craft, returning veterans who were missing limbs, Grand mm -hmm. Lodge obviously recognized, you know, these guys went over and fought, uh, fought for Canada, fought for freedom. We can't be now denying them, them entry into Lodge because while fighting, they, you know, lost a limb in, in battle so yeah. they changed that um, they changed that specific rule and you know a uh, hundred years later I show up so I'm sure they regret it now but at the time <laughs> what that's um, great <laughs> so you know uh, you, you brought up you know soldiers fighting in the first world war for Mason did you guys in Texas find the same thing that you had a lot of returning veterans and and were those your kind of big boom periods as well the 20s and, and 50s Yes, uh, which in fact, you know, Brent Morris um, from uh, Baltimore, uh, he did some interesting research on that. Um, and, you know, while the, uh, the whole United States saw, saw quite a bit of boom, Texas in particular did, you know, because uh, it's kind of a military culture down here. You know, a lot of folks go through the military because it's family heritage. Grandpa, dad, grandpa 
grandpa's grandpa was in the you know army or marines whatever it may have been it's a big culture so yeah we saw that boom more than most uh and you know i have a you know kind of an armchair theory about that you know because especially in world war one when the biggest boom was um those guys coming out of that war um of course were you know war is not easy on the mind but they had experienced a level of brotherhood that you can't find anywhere else you know and the closest thing that you get in their time was freemasonry you know because while there a lot of them do police force uh you know whatever it may be that they join there's a lot more avenues for that brotherhood where back then it was freemasonry or farming i guess you know what i mean uh so there was a there was a big draw for military men to that uh, fraternity, uh, not just because of the lessons, but because of the, the bonds that you get uh, that they miss. Uh, and, and they'll never, you never experience again. I mean, I can't imagine the bonds you get in a foxhole when bombs are going off around you. That's, it's gotta be, you gotta get pretty close to the guy next to you, you know? Uh, and, and Freemasonry kind of offers that. Cause I see guys that have been in the military that get into uh, Freemasonry and actually dive into it, they enjoy that brotherhood a little deeper than uh, civilians, as we call them down here, you know, than, than us regular folks, because uh, they, they know the value of that bond, you know, the firsthand. The, as, a, uh, as a motorcycle was revving by me, uh, <laughs> The, the bonds, you, you know, it, it, how much of, of, you know, what I'm about to say is, is actually the case versus how much is kind of media and, and yeah. you're not getting always the clear, clearest picture, but it, it seems like if ever there was a time that, you know, Canadian, American, just society in general seems to be fracturing. Uh, if ever there was a time, it seems like, you know, free, it, it's kind of Freemason's time to shine would be, you know, now when you, when you have so many fractures kind of appearing along all different types of lines in society, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if ever there was a time for Freemasonry, because uh, just like you said, I think, you know, uh, there are different groups and organizations that encourage brotherhood and encourage kind of togetherness and community mm -hmm. spirit. It seems like Freemasonry is the, has the strongest history and heritage of that um and so it just seems like i guess my question is do you think um um kind of the at least in, in ontario you know uh, membership numbers are dropping in the craft um, lodges aren't filling up the space like they used to mm -hmm. um, do you think that is kind of a symptom of kind of what we're seeing society in general, kind of the, the, the divisions, or do you think that in a sense it's the cause, like if Freemasonry were to grow stronger, you would see a reduction in these divisions in, in society? Oh, 100%, yeah. Uh, and I think if you look at any time in Freemasonry when it was booming, uh, doing good uh, it, by membership standards, by numbers, uh, they were always filling a void in society whether it be, uh, you know, uh, insurance or, you know, uh, helping you out when you're in need kind of thing, uh, you know, because Oddfellas did the same thing. They were huge here in America. We were filling a void in society that uh, now our government fills a lot of that void. Uh, and what guys are looking for today 
is that real connection? Because when you see men that travel uh, and Freemasonry promotes that and you see different cultures, e even with it's within the state, if not without the state, you start, you know, those walls start coming down just naturally. You know, you start educating yourself about how things are different in the world and how much gray there is mixed into all of this uh, stuff that goes on that it just naturally goes away. And that's what I love about Freemasonry is it promotes that, you know, because when I travel, uh, especially across the state, it's mostly Freemasonry. Um, but when I do travel, just me and my wife doing something out of state or whatever, I'm probably going to stop at a Masonic Lodge and take a picture in front of it, you know, or something uh, silly like that, that uh, does start breaking down those walls uh, of you know, that, that borders can put up and we can so easily get lost in the media hype. Uh, Freemasonry thinks you to, it teaches you to think far outside of that. If you experience the things it's promoting you to experience, you know, cause that's, that's kind of the key thing to it all is the, the experiences Freemasonry promotes, whether it's helping raise a brother in a degree or teaching them their work or traveling, all of those things are going to break down those walls because when you get to know other people on a personal level, it's just hard not to like them. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, the traveling aspect, going back to that, you know, that's always my advice to a new Mason. Mm. Um, you know, you got to, uh, you know, it's easy to be lazy, but, but don't be lazy. You know, the, the chance to travel, you know, if you're not taking advantage of that as much as you can, you know, your, your Masonic career is going to be so much less full and so much less, uh, it's going to be so much less meaningful. Um, and also no. the other way around too, right? You, you, when somebody, when a Mason travels, they benefit from the travel, but the lodge they are visiting benefits from that visitation as well, right? It, it works both ways. So even if you are not in the mood to travel, just think about what you provide to that lodge by being there. Um, yeah can mean a lot so you know yeah don't be lazy i know you people like to sleep but jump in your car and go to another lodge you'll be fine it's worth it yeah and and you can find it, it you know you'll go to a lodge and you may not enjoy it a whole lot and it's easy to find reasons not to enjoy it but it's kind of like a, a buffet if you leave hungry it's your own fault because um, i guarantee you if you were to sit down with any of those brothers and be a little outgoing and ask some open-ended questions you're going to get a story about something that's going to make that whole trip worthwhile, no matter if the reading of the minutes takes an hour and a half, you know, and you got to suffer through that part. You, you forget about that and remember the stories you heard at dinner time or, or after the meeting in the parking lot, whatever it may be, make the effort to make it worth your while. And I promise you it will be, you know, um, a lot of these stories and the letter I told you about in World War One all came about by just pushing for that you know fellowship because it it doesn't always just magically appear sometimes you got to work at it that well that that brings up the question and i've i've brought this up on other interviews um do, do you think that freemasonry should be and i'm trying to think of the the, the dichotomy it should freemasonry be an enjoyable experience or a fulfilling experience? Because I think that those two, sometimes they go together, but they often don't. Um, 
you know, the classic example I, I've often used is exercise. I myself am very lazy. So uh-huh. I would rather never, I would rather never exercise uh, if I had my, my brothers. But uh, I recognize that even though it may not be an enjoyable experience, right, it is uh, fulfilling or necessary if I want to, you know, have the best quality of life. And I yeah. think, you know, in Freemasonry, um, we can sometimes forget, you know, yes, it can be boring and uninteresting to listen to minutes being read and listen to accounts being passed, or even, you know, to, to attend a degree when you have no work to do, when you're just there as a spectator. Yeah. But, you know, it's, if not for you yourself, for the lodge, it's fulfilling because when the candidate, you know, sees a full lodge room, it means thing to that candidate and it improves the morale of the, you know, and the yeah. minutes, the correspondence and all that administrative stuff, while it can be boring, you know, you can't have a functioning, uh, uh, a functioning organization of any kind without that administrative stuff. Like it's necessary. And that means also as a, even if you are not the secretary and, you know, paying attention to those things, means that when you are in those roles of administration or leadership, you know what's going on. So I yeah. just think you know, it's, it's used phrase, right? It's about putting in the work, right? That work isn't always going to be fun and that's okay. It doesn't always have to be fun. It can sometimes be boring, but you know, necessary for the growth of the craft as a whole. Yeah, no, uh, the thing about the work is to me, that's where a big part of the secret is. Uh, and, and when you dive into those quarries and you put in that work, there's going to be a special blossom or bloom of whatever event or whatever degree that that's going to crescendo into uh, that's going to be special for you. And I can't, you can't articulate that to other Masons. You know, uh, it's like I hear a lot of the times, well, I'm not a ritualist. Uh, I can't memorize all that. Well, I couldn't memorize all that. And I didn't consider myself a ritualist either. But there was a time where I put in the work and I saw the glean in the candidate's eyes that was like life changing for that man. And I was right there as a part of it because of the work I put in before that I was a part of that moment. And it was no doubt in my mind that that was a profound, you know, initiation for him. And it, yeah, I was, well, I'm a ritualist now, you know, if this is what you get out of this, if this is master's wages, I want more of this stuff. And it's the same thing if it's uh, not doing things like, you know, we do, uh, we follow Ezekiel Bates lead and did the Masonicon thing here in Texas, Texas Masonicon. And let me tell you what, it's a lot of hard work putting that together, a lot of anxious hours. Are we going to sell tickets? Is there going to be a hiccup getting somebody here? A lot of moving parts that came together in such a way and there was so much fellowship and education going on that there was a special moment for us guys that put it together. That was like, wow, you know, we took part in this. So now I'm, I'm a ritualist as well as planning special events. Like I want to be a part of it because the work that you put in gives you that special bloom that the other guys that, you know, while they enjoy it and they're having profound moments, it's not the same as, uh, helping construct that moment, you know, there, there's a special, special bloom, if you will, you know, for those guys that put in the work. Is there a, uh, I just wondering, 
uh, Texas is a border state with, with Mexico. Windsor is right on the border with Detroit. So there's a lot of visitation back and forth. Is there mm-hmm. a, a fair amount of visitation that happens between um, Freemasons in Texas and Freemasons in Mexico? And, and do you find a lot of travel back and forth and visitations between uh, the two countries, I guess? Yeah, I, I think it happens uh, a lot more, um, you know, uh, very quietly. Uh, you know, like I know a couple of Masons there on the border uh, that there's a lot of like shrine, uh, especially when children get hurt in Mexico, like for the burn center and stuff. There's a lot of back and forth there, uh, a lot of great work that takes place uh, and things like that. Um, but I think it happens a little more quietly than, uh, you know, on a vast public scale. Uh, because I hear about it all the time in border towns, but it's so far for others. You know what I mean? Texas being such a vast state. Now, our Grand Lodges have done some things, you know, in the past together, uh, you know, showing the solidarity that we have with those jurisdictions and things like that. Um, but it is something that, I mean, for all of our border states, for that matter, that I wished we did more together. But that you start shrinking that in. I wish we did more with the lodges in the temple that I meet. You know what I mean? I wish, and it grows out all the way to that, to that level. Um, and there's only, you know, there's only so much we can do right now. Uh, uh, but we're, I think we're getting there because a lot of things have changed the 16 years I've been in this fraternity. What got you into the fraternity 16 years ago now? Did you have family connections to the craft or was it just something you had always been interested in yourself? Nope. No, I had no interest. And I had a lot of family members that were in the craft. Um, Great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, grandfather, uh, and my dad. Well, my cousin joined first. Um, and he joined four or five years, maybe six years before me. Then my dad joined about two or three years later. And he was like, son, you're going to love this. And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know, dad. I don't have time. He's like, I'm going to pay for it. You just come on up. I was like, okay. I had no idea what I was getting into. There's pictures of me from my fellow craft, which, you know, I, I don't know why I freely admit this, but I was in shorts. You know, that's how far I was realizing from what I was getting into. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't something I immediately fell in love with. There were some issues the craft had back in that time that just really turned me off. Um, but I since, since found out how interwoven it was with the men in my family that I looked up to. Um, and my dad, he became worshipful master of our lodge, Fort Worth 148. And, uh, he appointed me junior steward and, and just something drew me back. So I took on that responsibility as cooking for lodge. Uh, the very first meal I burnt spaghetti. Don't ask me how you do that. It's a hard work to burn spaghetti, but I did it and they forgave me. So I was like, ah, I like these guys. They're all right. <laughs> and it stuck. I just dug in ever since. And, you know, moving from the past to the, the future, what is on the, the you know, agenda for yourself? Uh, is the grand order, is it like a one-year term, two-year term, or do you remain in it at kind of the pleasure of the grand master? And also, um, you know, in your, your mother lodge and, and your lodges, mm-hmm. um, I understand you, if I recall correctly from the Book of Faces, you're just out of the East now. No, no, no. It's been a minute for me. Uh, actually, a 10-year anniversary for me. That was 2010, 2011. Okay, so, so then. Yeah, I was, no, 
hell that's been that's been a minute ago too i was ddgm in 2016 so yeah it's been a minute i've been a has-been for a little while <laughs> I, th- I think grand order sounds like you're uh I still am as opposed to I have been. I am, a, I am, I am now. Yes. <laughs> there you go. So is your term coming up or um, are you, will you be remaining in that, in that position? Just kind of what's on the, uh, the radar? No, it, it's a one-year position or it's a pointed position. Um, but it is traditionally a one-year. Every grandmaster appoints a new grand order, mostly because they still want to hear the same guy two years in a row. <laughs> um but I've still got six months and I'm squeezing every ounce of it out of it that I can. Uh, <clears throat> like the first part of the year, we do a bunch of historical events that I was speaking at almost back to back. And now that that's all out of the way, we've got a long spread of time before I have another official event as Grand Order. So I'm going around to lodges presenting that letter I was telling you about uh, and far and wide. I mean, I, I'm traveling almost 10 hours to El Paso here next month to present it out there. Uh, and then down South towards the coast, uh, a couple of weeks after that, uh, all over the state. Uh, so if I hadn't been grand order, it'd probably be a little bit tougher to make that happen. But with that title behind, you know, I, I don't I say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm serving as your grand order this year. And I want to come do a presentation at your lodge. Would you mind? They're like, Oh, we'd love to have you as opposed to I'm some old past master from a lodge here in North Texas. And they're like, yeah, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> so I'm soaking it in and enjoying every minute of it. Cause <clears throat> that letter. Yeah. It, yeah. Mason's deserved to hear. That's for sure. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds like a, uh, an awesome letter and, and just an example of, you know, what can be, what can be discovered, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the danger that so many temples and lodges, one of the dangers is, you know, if you don't, it's so easy for, for historical documents and letters such as that to, to get lost, you know, pieces oh. of history of the temple. If you don't have like a dedicated historian, you know, maintaining these and, and, hopefully start looking at digitizing them. I know a guy in the States, a Mason in the States is working on that. Like mm-hmm. this is just one example of something that it's so easy for a piece of paper to get filed away and lost. And then, you know, that piece of history is, is lost. So I think yeah. this is a great example of just, you know, it, if you're a member of a lodge or on a temple board or whatever it is, like take the time to, to go, go scavenge through your records. Oh man, yeah. Protect Bingo. Them, you know, even you know, I, I had an interview with um, the archivist of the city of Windsor for this podcast, and just oh, all no. the things that you know, mice, water damage, heat, like all mm-hmm. the things you have to do to protect these things from the elements, from from rodents. Like it's very important uh, to do so, and you know, yeah. your letter. And I would think Texas having such a, a robust history having such a connection to freemasonry and vice versa you know there's so many lodges that are probably sitting on just treasure troves of historical information oh, about man. texas and the crown so yeah let that let this letter be uh, an example of just the importance of maintaining these things no and i i that's part of the presentation that i do is kind of the etymology of that letter of how it was written on a battlefield in france uh you know in 1918 
shipped over to Texas, uh, read to the Brothers of Hillsboro at that time, and then put in their minutes, you know, just basically in the book of minutes um, until almost 100 years later. Some guys discovered it and they were, you know, they're, they're very proud of it down there. And then the fact that we had another brother, Sam Gibbons, that visited and gave out all the coins, you know, and they gave him this, the way that it ended up all the way back into our hands, presented back at the, the uh, brother that was killed in Actions Lodge 100 years later. It was just, it's a beautiful story. Um, not to mention all the back stories that I've found out behind it. You know, one of the dads was 22nd governor of Texas. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's, it's a great, fantastic story. And you think about just about the brother who was writing that letter mm-hmm. and taking the time to write that letter. You know, he's writing that letter on the battlefield. It's not like yeah. he was in a nice hotel air conditioned, you know, he's, I'm yeah. sure he was covered in mud and shit and who knows what, um, oh. by taking the time to document this and send it to, you know, send it back home, you know, he recognized this is something that needs to be remembered for future generations. Yeah. And, and you can feel it in his letter <clears throat> that he was the craft at that moment was a crutch for him because he was having an extremely hard time dealing with what had just happened. I mean, there were a lot of men killed and wounded. There were men he knew that were gassed. The guy that they performed the Masonic rites over, over the, because they performed it on all the fallen Masons on the field, which there were a lot of, uh, especially Texas Masons, because that was a big battle they were involved in. Uh, but the particular Mason that he was in front of, he knew well, you know, and he was having a hard time dealing with all this death and destruction. And the way he was able to help deal with that was write this letter to his brothers. And it, it's just beautiful, you know, because he talks about how, look, Sorry, guys, I opened a lodge in the middle of France. I, I didn't have a charter. We didn't have aprons. I'm sorry, but I know you're going to forgive me. You know, of course, he doesn't say it like as jesting like that. It's very beautiful language from the 19, you know, early 1900s. Uh, but that's basically where he's like, man, in order to deal with all this death and destruction, I fell back hard on Freemasonry. And this is what we did. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And just referencing the battlefield, um, I mean, I'm assuming, um, I, I don't, actually, I don't know how, if the brother could have known uh, necessarily, but, you know, a battlefield is going to be filled with, with wounded and also the dead of both um, your side and the other side. I mean, my, yeah. my assumption is, right, whoever, it, it wasn't, uh, at that point, it's not about giving giving Masonic rights to, you know, your side necessarily. It's about giving Masonic rights to uh, any brother who may have fallen on that battlefield, whether it be American, Canadian, German, wh- whatever the, mm-hmm. the battle lines were, right? Once once you're 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 dead and it's a matter of giving Masonic rights, then it then you're not the enemy anymore. You're just a brother. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and it it really conveys the um the devastation that's laid on the mind of the men that make it through things like that you know because uh, uh, having n- never gone through anything even close to something like that i have no clue um but it really it strongly conveys that you know hey even though i got through this battle and i didn't get wounded at all i'm still wounded you know this this is highly this is 
touched him on levels that we'll never experience. But yeah, hopefully at some point, because uh, I'm planning on recording it at some point, and then our, our Grand Lodge will put that out, you know, um, on their social media or whatever, maybe however we decide to put that out. Um, and I, I was just kind of doing it in person for a little bit, getting the practice down because it gets better and better every time. Absolutely. And, and yeah, when I, when I can tell, please let me know and I'll, I'll share it for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners of the podcast and, you know, brethren in Ontario. Um, I, I, you mentioned it and this is something I've been learning more and more about. So um, it's something I'm interested in and I'd love to learn more about, about your, your, um, your work on the Texas Masonicon. I actually just got my shirt from Ezekiel Bates. Oh yeah, uh, and I've had uh, I've had Ezekiel Bates. I've had Brian Simmons on the podcast, as well as the organizers of Esotericon, which mm-hmm. just took. Um, but yeah, what what is happening in terms of of Texas Masonicon? Are you guys working on it right now, or when is when when will it be, when will it be? And also, where can brothers learn more about it if they want to take part? So. Um... Golly, it's been so long since I've been to the website. I think it is texasmasonicon.com. But we are basically, it's either that or txmasonicon.com. Oh, man, my guys are going to kick me for not knowing that. <laughs> Google Texas Masonicon, it'll come up. But um, uh, we're knocking the rust off the cogs basically right now because we had, of course, had to cancel uh, for 2020. And then, you know, these things take so long to plan uh, that 2021 was still iffy when we needed to start making travel plans and all that stuff. Uh, so we decided to postpone that 2021 as well. But uh, we are now starting to, like I say, knock the rust off the cogs to plan for 2022. Uh, and that will, you know, more than likely be around the same time. We're planning around the other conferences and things like that. It's been great because we're all in communication now to where we don't overlap. We help promote each other's stuff uh, in that kind of that kind of thing, you know, cause it, it's something that needed to happen a long time ago. And I'm glad Ezekiel Bates broke that seal, you know, cause uh, it, it seems to be catching on whether it's a Masonicon event on that size um, or if it's just lodges holding some kind of extra activity outside a stated meeting that's educational and fellowship. It's catching on a lot more. Good. So yeah, keep everybody watching this, you know, keep these, these cons in mind because there is, like I said, uh, this year, a lot of them, there's, there's been a lot of cancellations or switching mm-hmm. over to virtual, um, knock on wood, you know, uh, uh, as vaccinations go up, et cetera, et cetera. We, we should hopefully be going back to in-person um, Masonic cons and you know, it's, it's well worth supporting. It's kind of a chance to, it, you know, it, just attending virtually, let alone in person, it kind of feels like you're, you're, it's traveling, but it's, it's almost like visiting four or five lodges at once because you go to one of these events. Oh, and yeah. you come in. It's a, it's a great way to travel. And also, you know, you can travel in person to these events and you see the speakers, but then you can also get a chance to see the Masonic sites in the city and you're meeting brothers from multiple lodges, multiple states, internationally, perhaps it's, 
it's well worth keeping uh, keeping abreast of. That's for sure. No, and it's something I think every state needs to look into because um, while it is fun to travel to these things from state to state, you know, uh, <clears throat> not everybody has the time nor the resources to do that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the vast majority of our people are local Masons. Uh, while we do get a lot from around the state as well, uh, there's even been like a South Texas Masonicon that popped up, you know, because this is a big state, you know, uh, so don't think your state's too small for one. Um, just plan accordingly, you know, don't spend thousands of dollars if you're only going to have, you know, 30 or 40 guys show up. But still, that's a, that that's a um, it's something that needs to start in more states uh, in, in, you know, that way the local brothers that don't have the time or resources can enjoy these kind of things because there's a lot of Masonic speakers out there. 30 to 40 is not a bad attendance at all for a smaller state. I mean, that would be, that would be fine, you know, and yeah, you get some of those states like in, in, well, I know Masonicon is happening in New Hampshire next year, but, you look at some of those states along the coast, I mean, they're all just so tiny that you yeah. can have, you know, it's e it would be easy to, you know, bring in brothers from like Massachusetts and just all over New England type of thing, right? It's, mm -hmm. yeah, so. No, and I hate mentioning, uh, I hate mentioning attendance because that really, truly, that shouldn't be the gauge of a successful conference. And of course, if you've got to make a certain amount of money because you're budgeting, there is some success gauging there, but uh, really to me, the success is gauged off of how did the attendees feel after they left? You know, how did that event go off? And if they're wanting more, that thing's going to grow. That's a good, uh, that's a good question uh, for us to kind of uh, leave with. How would you define success? in Masonic terms? What would you say makes a successful lodge meeting, makes a successful lodge, a successful district? Just what would you say is, is some of the key factors to defining success in Masonic terms? Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh, because really and truly, um, it, it's, it, it's gonna be, um, you know, it's gonna be brothers that enjoy the work, uh, that don't mind getting their hands dirty, you know, that you, you see that they respect each other's time. Things are planned out well. They're executed well. Uh, there's practice that's gone into it because uh, success for me has never been about numbers. Uh, we do a lot of educational programs at my lodge that sometimes there's the speaker and four, maybe three other guys. Uh, and typically those are the best nights. You know, those are the ones that are most memorable to me where things start opening up. So, um, success for me is what product you're putting out on the other end. If we're putting out one good man a year, taking a good man and making him better and, and putting out a better product of one a year, to me, that's better than just having 10 guys there keeping the lodge open, not getting any better. So it's, it's really a gauge of the end product of what we're spitting out. You know, are the Masons that we're raising wanting to become officers and leaders in our craft? Um, are they just wanting to uh, float along and come up stated meeting and eat a meal and go? Um, are we motivating them to do more? Uh, and if not, to me, something's not working right. You know, we're doing, we're doing something wrong. If we're, if we don't have men trying to be better, 
not being told what to do. They're just, they're just men that are, are able to do it because that's, that's the type of guy Masons attract. We don't ask you to be one. You got to ask us, you know, so we're looking for that self-starter. That is a very good definition of, of success for sure. Um, with that, uh, I very much enjoyed this interview. I would consider it a success. <laughs> great chat, great opportunity to, to speak to somebody from a Masonic jurisdiction. I've yet to attend, but very much uh, would like to and, and hope to soon. Holler at us. Fort Worth is awesome, too. You can come Sorry. see us down here. Holler at us. I said Fort Worth is awesome as well. You can come see us down here in, in Cowtown. I would love to. I would love to for sure. And the same goes the other way. If you ever find yourself traveling way up north, um, you know, come come swing by Canada. My jurisdiction yes. is scary. Uh, just t- just give them my name. Like it through. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am sure, Windsor, so I'm right next to Detroit, where they can hop in a skip. Oh um, yeah, yeah. And Detroit's got a beautiful Masonic temple. I need to go see too. That'd be yeah. Be a double world. whammy. Yeah. You, uh, the Detroit Masonic Temple is amazing. I had Rob Moore on. He's the chief docent there. It, the Mas- Detroit Masonic Temple is such an amazing, uh, such an amazing building, uh, both Masonically and just in terms of the the city itself. I mean, yeah. the Beatles, Phantom of the Opera, like so many, the White, like so many acts have been through there, performed there. Wow. You, know, you, you would hear all the time. Even people in Windsor, back when crossing the border, you know, was was possible. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to the Masonic for a concert, going to the Masonic for an opera, and they they wouldn't even necessarily recognize that it was a Masonic temple. To them, the Masonic was just a title of a concert hall. The yeah. idea that it's an active Masonic temple where you know those Freemasons meet, a lot of them didn't even realize it. So it's. <laughs> It's just such an important part of, of the city of Detroit, the state of Michigan, and of the Grand Lodge. It, it kind of yeah. intercepts all three. No, I got to get up there for sure. I've oh, enjoyed yeah, it thoroughly it. as well, Cameron. Take a tour. It's an amazing spot. And oh. uh, speaking of that, I'll mention, you know, we offer tours of the Windsor Masonic Temple once things open up again. And, and we offer virtual tours as well. Um, you like the video like comment subscribe all that good stuff patreon all the words you're supposed to say uh <laughs> the, the the audio is on uh, spotify podbean all those locations and yeah right worshipful sir thank you so much for your time i really appreciated it thank you brother <laughs>